Welcome and on this effect, it's a show where we talk about politics, culture and relationships through a psychological lens. And I'm doing this calm German accent for my mate Dennis. He knows who he is and he just loves it. Mwah. This week on Disaffected, we have the Twitter files. Elon Musk has been sharing with Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss and others all about how Twitter engaged in censorship and all the ways that it claimed that it was not doing censorship. Then we are going to find out about nuclear waste disposal chief Sam Brinton again, who has been caught stealing a second woman's bag at a different airport. This time it's in Las Vegas, but it didn't stay in Vegas. We've also got an elected official here in Vermont who addressed the city council meeting, not city council, but close enough. Uh, she has a plan to, uh, in her words, eviscerate the stickers that have been going up around Burlington that she disagrees with about transing children. And she's going to replace them, as she says, with welcoming messages that she does approve of. Also staying locally, the city of Burlington is making gardeners take a woke loyalty pledge in order to have a plot in the publicly funded community garden. And where would we be without more pedophilia? Project Veritas caught the dean of a San Diego high school bragging on camera about giving students butt plugs and dildos and having discussions about whether it is better to use lubricant or spit for sexual activities. Let's go. All right, Sam, play it again, Sam Brinton, play it again. So last week we told you about how Sam Brinton, who is um, a character out of a John Waters movie from 1974, basically, um, he is the chief of nuclear waste disposal. He's got a very high security clearance here in the United States, and he was caught at the Minneapolis airport, I believe in September, although we didn't hear about it until recently. He was caught stealing a woman's bag from the luggage carousel um, taking the clothes out of it, then claiming it was a mistake and then claiming he didn't take the clothes and then offering no explanation. And this is all caught on camera. Well, he is a serial offender. Surprise, surprise. Take a look at this tweet from our, um, our own libs of TikTok, our own, like I own her or something. Give me a break. She's going to be like, you own me. <laughs> so here we've got Sam Brinton. Biden's non-binary nuclear waste guru who engages in pup play, gives spanking classes, has a fetish for wearing women's clothing, and has now stolen luggage from two airports, also seemingly gave lessons on rope bondage, according to images from Instagram. And we, we see a picture of a naked young man who is not, thankfully, Sam Brinton, bent, oh, yes, bent over, naked all bound up on ropes because this is the sort of thing we do in hotel conference centers now. And just to remind you who we're dealing with with Sam Brinton, uh, can we put that lovely portrait up, um, Kevin? Uh, good old Baldy there. There he is. <laughs> oh, my God. What is he wearing around his neck? That necklace looks like I'm not going to tell you what I think it looks like. But anyway, here, I'll give you a little bit of a report from 8 News Now in Las Vegas. An Energy Department official is accused of stealing luggage from Harry Reid International Airport, the 8 News Now investigators learned Thursday. A felony warrant was issued for Sam Brinton, a deputy assistant secretary, sources said. The charges for glan... glant. 
<laughs> the charges for grand larceny, it's probably that too, I wouldn't put it past him. Grand larceny with a value between $1,200 and $5,000 records showed. Uh, Brinton faces charges for a similar incident at the Minneapolis airport. He was on leave after charges were filed in connection with that incident, an Energy Department spokesman said in November. And uh, we have an image of him in the act stealing. Kevin, can you put the um, put that image up? No, not the one. Yeah, that's right. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, wait, go back, go back. <laughs> no, the the image beforehand. <laughs> yes, that one. <laughs> Damn it, you ruined my joke. <laughs> I was gonna say, oops, sorry. That's the hamburger. I'm sorry, that's Madonna. It's the panty burglar. Um, different panty burglar. Uh, all right, you can take Madonna off the screen now. <laughs> she can't be exposed to sunlight. It degrades her outside texture. <laughs> this is the image that we have of Sam. Brinton. <laughs> the memes have been absolutely killing me. <laughs> hiding that luggage behind all those nuclear waste barrels. Mm. All right. So obviously this is a developing story. When he gets to um, panty raid number three, we will be sure to bring you film at 11. So let's talk about the Twitter files, what everybody is referring to as the Twitter files. Elon Musk has promised that he is going to make transparent all of the internal communications that Twitter staff have uh, have discussed, who to censor, who to shadow ban, all the things that Jack Dorsey, the former CEO, and officials at Twitter have denied repeatedly to Congress, to the public, to the media that they have done. They have been doing these things that they claim they haven't done. So um, Matt Taibbi had a thread last week, journalist Matt Taibbi, and this week Barry Weiss uh, got the Golden Cup, and she's got the inside scoop. So we'll go to the first one. This is from um, Barry's Twitter thread. A new Twitter files investigation reveals that teams of Twitter employees build blacklists, prevent disfavored tweets from trending, and actively limit the visibility of entire accounts or even trending topics all in secret without informing users. Take, for example, Stanford's, that is Stanford University, Stanford's Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who argued that COVID lockdowns would harm children. Twitter secretly placed him on a trends blacklist, which prevented his tweets from trending. If you're not a Twitter user, on the right-hand side of the screen, there's a category called trends, and it's usually, it's just manufactured stuff that they want to push, uh, but they claim that these are the hottest uh, topics that people are talking about, but Twitter games it all the time. Uh, so they had a list of suppressing things, so organically trending things were not allowed at Twitter if uh, they contained a challenge to the narrative. Um, so this next image we're going to show you, this is, um, this is what a Twitter employee sees on his or her screen when looking at Dr. Jay Bhattacharya's uh, account. So what we've got here is a bunch of bars that indicate the status that he's in. He's an active Twitter user, uh, but he's got a, quote, recent abuse strike, which means um, he's been tagged at least once for doing abuse. This is a doctor at Stanford who said that COVID might be harmful. Uh, locking down schools would be harmful to children. I really don't think he actually did anything abusive. Uh, you'll see it also, it indicates to the Twitter moderator he's on a trends blacklist. They actually just call it blacklist. This is what people do when they're not afraid of being exposed, when they know that they're not going to have any consequences. Um, next one Barry gives us. <clears throat> 
she says, or consider the popular right-wing talk show host, Dan Bongino, who at one point was slapped with a search blacklist. So we got a picture of Dan Bongino's uh, internal uh, screen for the Twitter moderators. Verified active, notification spike, search blacklist. He's on the search blacklist. Um, multiple accounts. That's a, um, that's a warning. It's a warning sign. Um, he's labeled as a not safe for work view. So he's going to be hidden behind stuff. And SPMA, and I have no idea what that means, but it's... Um, I'm sure it's not anything good. <clears throat> Quoting from Barry, Twitter denied that it does such things. In 2018, Vijaya Gade, then head of legal policy and trust, they have an apartment called, a department called trust, just like they have a department called trust and safety. So uh, Twitter's then head of legal policy and trust and Kayvon Bakepour, head of product, these are their words, not mine. He said, quote, we do not shadow ban. They added, and we certainly don't shadow ban based on political viewpoints or ideology. Again, I'm reading to you from Barry, Barry Weiss. What many people call shadow banning, Twitter executives and employees called visibility filtering or VF. Multiple high-level sources confirmed its meaning. Think about visibility filtering as a way for us to suppress what people see to different levels. It's a very powerful tool, one senior Twitter employee told us. VF refers to Twitter's control over user visibility. Twitter used VF to block searches of individual users, to limit the scope of a particular tweet's discoverability, to block select users' posts from ever appearing on the trending page and from inclusion in hashtag searches. So if you were searching for a particular topic related to somebody that they didn't want and they didn't want you to find that somebody, they would institute that ban uh, and they would not appear in the search for the hashtag you were looking for. And they did all this without users' knowledge. Quote, we control visibility quite a bit and we control the amplification of your content quite a bit. And normal people do not know how much we do, one Twitter engineer told us. Two additional Twitter employees confirmed. They went even farther, implementing a system for super serious, high controversy accounts that don't even get a traceable ticket in their monitoring protocol. This is how far they've gone. More from Barry. But there existed a level beyond official ticketing, beyond the rank-and-file moderators following the company's policies on paper. That is the, quote, site integrity policy, policy expl... Are we going to do nominative determinism again this week? <laughs> Let me try again. That is the site integrity policy, policy escalation support known as SIP. Pass. <laughs> Can somebody please get these people a lexicographer? <laughs> I work at Twitter. I'm in um I'm in HR where you I'm in SIP pass. <laughs> it sounds like one of their stupid lattes at their free employee cafeteria. This secret group included a head of legal 
Policy and Trust, Vijaya Gade, the Global Head of Trust and Safety, Yoel Roth, subsequent CEOs, Jack Dorsey and Parag Agrawal, and others. This is where the biggest, most politically sensitive decisions get made. Quote, think high follower account controversial, another Twitter employee told us. For these, there would be no ticket or anything. Yeah. No paper trail, no digital trail. But we don't do those things at Twitter.com. Take a look at what they did with the libs of TikTok account, which is this fantastic account. I pull so much from them, run by a woman named Chaya Rychik, uh, who was actually, and the only reason we know her name is because that um, that wicked little imp, Taylor Lorenz, now at the um, Washington Post, um, dedicated her, her time to outing this woman and harassing her family members. Um, so here's a, here's a picture of the libs of TikTok screen that you'll see if you're a Twitter moderator, and this one's filled. Uh, high profile Notification spike, trends blacklist, recent abuse strike. Keep that in mind. I want you to keep the word abuse and the words hateful in your mind regarding libs of TikTok. Abuse and hateful. Verified multiple accounts, strike count two, high profile, not safe for work view. Not safe for work. It's not safe for work for you to look at what libs of TikTok puts up. Do you know what libs of TikTok puts up? Actual TikTok users own material, not things that libs of TikTok made, just repost other people's material, including teenagers and young adults who are talking about the most sexual things ever that Twitter does not censor. But showing them in a context that might make them questionable, that is what makes libs of TikTok not safe for work. Got it? Understood? All makes perfect sense, right? Completely rational. Back to Barry Weiss's words. The account, which Chaya Rychik began in November 2020 and now boasts over uh, 1.4 million followers, was subjected to six suspensions in 2022 alone. Twitter repeatedly informed Rychik that she'd been suspended for violating Twitter's policy against, quote, hateful contact, hateful conduct. But in an internal SIP-PES memo from October 2022, after her seventh suspension, the committee acknowledged that, and here's a quote, Libs of TikTok has not directly engaged in behavior violative of the haunt, hateful conduct policy. Again, violative is not a word. Um, and this takes us to this interesting piece here. I'm going to show it to you on the screen. I'm going to read it to you because it's, there's too much. You're not going to be able to read everything on your screen. But this is the site policy recommendation that internal Twitter moderators um, have four libs of TikTok. Listen to this. Site policy, the site policy department, recommends placing libs of TikToks in a seven-day timeout at the account level based on the account's continued pattern of indirectly violating Twitter's hateful conduct policy by tweeting content that either leads to or intends to incite harassment against individuals and institutions that support LGBTQ communities. At this time, site policy has not found explicitly violative tweets which would result in a permanent suspension of the account. This type of enforcement action will not lead to a permanent suspension. However, should libs of TikTok engage in any other direct 
complete level violations of any of site policies policies, yes, I'm reading to you verbatim, we will move forward with permanent suspension. Oh my God. This, okay, so again, why am I talking about this? Why does this matter? I'm anticipating some people listening. I'm not on Twitter. Only 10% of Americans are on Twitter. Why are you so obsessed with social media? Here's why. Because regardless of the fact that you personally aren't on Twitter, I'm not anymore either because I'm dirty and contaminated and hateful, it does set the agenda. It sets the public conversation. It sets what the mainstream news talks about. It is also a tool that the mainstream news uses to set the cultural agenda. What is discussed on Twitter does affect you. It affects all of us. We are now learning that it's very likely that Twitter directly interfered with the recent election by suppress. I mean, we know that they suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop story. They kicked the New York Post off Twitter. They didn't just take down the New York Post's tweet to the story about Hunter Biden. They shut their account down, the entire newspaper. It was down for at least a week. This is the oldest newspaper in the United States. That's why I'm talking about this. I don't know. I don't know um, if I don't know everything that Elon Musk is going to do with Twitter, obviously. Um, but the point of all of this is everything that Barry Weiss is illustrating, that Matt Taibbi is illustrating, all these things I've quoted for you. This is proof of everything that people have been saying about Twitter for years stuff that I've been saying about Twitter, stuff that people who are much, much bigger and better known than me and at a much higher Twitter profile than I did, they've been saying this. And we've been told collectively that we're lying, that we're paranoid, um, that we are abusing Twitter. We're defaming them by claiming that they would engage in these underhanded tactics. And people who don't want to believe it simply won't. Well, I'm afraid I'm sorry, but we were right. We were not lying. We weren't exaggerating. We weren't defaming Twitter. Twitter was lying. Twitter was exaggerating. And Twitter was defaming us. Fact. Not a matter of opinion. You don't get to disagree. It's a fact. We'll see what comes out of it. Um, Going to go to a break here, but I want to remind you that we would love to have your support. And you would love to give us your support because if you do, at the $10 level or higher, you get access to our 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week Discord chat server. We've got more than 250 people in there now and topic rooms about everything from hobbies and crafts to politics to wokeness to um, if you want to know about my kerosene lamp collection or my cats, I'm constantly spamming people with that kind of crap. Come on, get in on it. Several ways to support, and we really, really would appreciate it. Thank you, um, everybody who pays some money to help keep this show going. Go to patreon.com slash disaffected or subscribestar.com slash disaffected. If you just want to give a one-off donation, you don't want to do a monthly subscription, very happy to have that. Use PayPal, please, and send us a donation to the email address us at disaffected.f. M. And I also, uh, there's no easy way to give you a link for this, but I want to let you know too, you know that uh, 
I run a Substack as well, the Disaffected Newsletter. If you join and subscribe to the Substack at that level as well, you will also get Discord uh, access. So what happens is the special perks that all of you, regardless of your platform, get uh, the access to the essays and the backstage. Like we did a couple of backstage recordings this week uh, where I did audio episodes and I let the audience and Discord listen in and then ask questions afterwards. Doesn't matter what platform you're on, you get all the same benefits because I repost everything on all the platforms, so you're all getting in there. All right, I said I was gonna go to a break and I'll shut up. See you on the other side. There's a new perk for disaffected subscribers, and it's a good one. Patreon and Subscribestar donors, as well as PayPal donors, now have instant access to our backstage Discord server. Join multiple topic-based chat rooms and 24-7 open voice chat, and even virtual events on a main stage for hosted conversations and backstage podcast recording sessions. It's not Twitter, and you don't have to pretend Bruce Jenner's vagina is real. Sign up today. Welcome back. All right. We got a treat. It's not a treat. It's so disgusting. We're going to talk about the Francis Parker School, a private school in San Diego, California. And we're going to talk about the Dean of Students, and his name is Joseph Bruno. And I'd like to show you his picture. Take him in. Take him all the way in. Ew, not like that. Um, just... For those of you who are listening, this is a guy, I'd put him at about 38 to 40 years old. Um, he's he, he spends a lot of time on his hair. He's got his hair very carefully sculpted, and he's got this entire giant Chester molester mustache. The kind of mustaches that you only used to see on guys named Steve, who were your cousin in upstate New York on the volunteer fire department in 1979. Okay. Nobody but the village people and my cousin Kevin ever had a mustache like that who was not Fireman Steve. I have a whole diatribe. I'm oh, sorry, I knocked the microphone. I'm not going to share with you. I have a whole psychosexual drama that I just know is going on, but I'm not going to speculate about it in public because what's on the public record is already good enough. So that is Joseph Bruno. He's your dean of students. Now, you've seen him in still, but what's he like in motion picture? Let's find out. I had like our LGBTQ plus health center come in. They were passing around butt plugs and dildos to my students, talking about queer sex, using blue versus using spit. Meet Joe Bruno, Dean of Students at the prestigious Francis W. Parker Private School in Chicago, which happens to charge $40,000 per student. They're just like passing around dildos, butt plugs. The kids are just playing with them. They're like, how do you, how does this work? How do we do, like, how does this work? That's a really like part of my job. Parents might be stunned to learn that Bruno's version of love and acceptance means handing out sex toys to underage students. So I've been the dean for four years. During Pride, we do a Pride week every year. And I had, um, I had like our LGBTQ plus health center come in. They were passing around butt plugs and dildos to my students, talking about queer sex, using blue versus using spit. Who is this? This is uh, an LGBTQ plus health center came in to talk to my high school students. 
they're just like passing around dildos, butt plugs. The kids are just playing with them. They're looking at them. In the school? In, in a classroom. Wow. Yeah. While I'm sitting there. Then we had a drag queen come in, um, pass out cookies and brownies and do photos. That's so amazing. And everybody's cool with that, like the butt plugs and the dildos. Yeah. Nobody complains. No. I mean, if the parents found out, would they? No. It's queer sex. This is the drag queen that came in. What's her name? Uh, Alexis Bevels. Alexis Bevels. And just hung out in my classroom. It was there? Or hung out in my office. You have so much freedom. So much wiggle room. So much freedom. So much money. I mean, to do stuff. Trustees are okay with that too? They don't know. They would. It's like we. I wouldn't even like run it by them. Like, why would I run it by them? They would be like, "Oh my god, that's wonderful." Yeah. All with the kids at with the classroom, fourteen, eighteen. They're like, "How do you? How does this work? How do we do? Like, how does this work?" Right. Um, so yeah, that's a really like cool part of my job is I don't have to worry about stuff like that. That was Project Veritas undercover video, obviously. I'm going to get the small stuff out of the way first because I have to, I have to pick at this stuff. Yeah, there's, all right. Notice the affect, notice the pronunciation, notice the vocabulary. We talk a lot on this show about delayed maturation, about arrested emotional development. We talk about how fully grown adults act and sound and speak like adolescents or like children. I've talked about how grown adults are adopting the vocal speech patterns of young teenage cohorts of kids. This guy's a perfect example. He's got to be 38, 40 years old from the looks of him. Uh, and if he's younger than that, he needs a better skincare routine. Um, you know, my students, my students. You know, the glottal stops and students and they're they're like they're like, how does this work? How does this butt plug work? And I had like the LGBTQ plus center like come into my classroom. Did you like have them do that? Like. Drives me absolutely crazy. But yeah, I know it's a small thing, but it is not unconnected to the rest of the stuff. This delayed maturation is a character trait of the people we find engaging in this stuff. How do you even talk about this? Because it is so surreal. It was so very recently in our society that it would have been unthinkable, meaning it would not have occurred to anyone to have teachers talking about sex toys with students, to be talking about whether to use lubricant or spit to have sex? Are you kidding me? This is, when I say recently, I mean within very recent living memory, five or six years ago. Uh, how did the unthinkable become compulsory? How did we all stop noticing it? Uh, I guess it's always been, no, it hasn't always been this way. And no, it doesn't have to be this way now. No, this is not change we just have to accept and grow with. It's like, it's like having a discussion about why radioactive fallout is harmful and 
having to convince the audience that it is harmful and that they should care while you look around at everybody in the audience who's got gray skin and their hair is falling out. But they're like, hey, what's wrong with radioactive fallout? We've always had radioactive fallout. <laughs> God, what do you even say? So the school's reaction, of course, was typical. Did they say anything about what their dean was doing? Absolutely not. They have made no statement whatsoever disavowing his um, passing out dildos and butt plugs and uh, spit and lube and all the other stuff. Did you, did you hear him? The, the undercover reporter says, so, you know, what if the parents found out? What if the trustees found out? Joe Bruno says, what are they going to say? It's queer sex. What are they going to say? It's queer sex. It's queer sex. Yeah, this is what I mean when I say they're not afraid of any consequences and they are correct not to be afraid of consequences. They're right because there have been none. He's right. What are they going to say? It's queer sex. And we've decided that anything queer overrides everything else all the time, no matter what. Don't you even question it. If you question it, you're hateful. So here we are. This is the world that we have allowed to happen. We, collectively, we did this. So it's our responsibility to change it, too. Staying on the topic of pedophilia, because pedophilia is having a moment, a cultural moment. I know everybody already talked about this. I know it's, I'm a week late on it, but this is a show that is not entirely driven on the news cycle. So sometimes you have to wait. Let's talk about the Spanish fashion house Balenciaga. Pedophilia is being actively normalized in, in the West, not just the United States, in the entire industrialized modern West. Everything the right wing said would happen with the sexual liberation movement is, in fact, happening. Sorry, it's happening. They did correctly predict this. Doesn't matter how angry that makes us. Doesn't matter. Truth is truth. So what did they predict? Sexualizing kids' programming, we see it all the way down to Sesame Street and below. American public schools routinely talking about sex and gender identity with children, going along with transing kids at the school level behind parents' backs, going so far, many public schools have gone so far as to have secret files with the child's real gender on it with little notes not to be shared with parent. This is now normal in American public schools. Teachers molesting students, handing out sex toys, giving out lurid, graphically detailed comic books like the book, I'm using quotation marks, book, the graphic novel, the extended comic book called Gender Queer, which is just a lesbian pornographic bacchanalia. Um, Handing out comic books full of actual, actual visual depictions of full-on sex and fellatio. I've showed them to you on this show. They're in American libraries across the country in schools. It's real. Hospitals are grooming kids to get their breasts sliced off and to be permanently sterilized so that they can be permanent minors. Hmm. I wonder what interest of pedophiles that, pedophiles that might be coincident with. I must be a conspiracy theorist. We've got people called furries who dress up as cartoon animals. It's a sexual fetish that they now want everybody to accept because they're demanding equality for furries, for people who wear Goofy the Dog costumes and get off on it. 
when I was a kid in Southern California, we lived in Orange County. My friend across the street, his name was Min, M-I-N-H. Uh, his mother's name was Lon. They were a Vietnamese refugee family. Min was my buddy, my pal. My mother and Lon hung out with each other. Uh, they'd take us to the park. And, uh, and, and Min and I would go off and ride our bikes and go to the park by ourselves, too. And one day we went to the park. And we had to go to the bathroom, so we went into the bathroom in the park, and there were some there were some local toughs in there because to me they looked like movie villains, but they were surely just teenage boys. I was probably uh, gee, how old would I have been? Eight or nine years old. Um, but they were they were cholos, is what they were. They were cholos. They were Mexican guys. Hey man, how you doing? You know. Wearing bandanas around their heads, smoking cigarettes, looking a little sketchy, you know, as teenage boys often do. I don't know what it was. Well, it was the zeitgeist of the times because everybody, this was the era of uh, missing children on milk cartons. And all the after school specials and movies of the week were about child kidnapping and stuff like that. So um, I freaked out. There was something about these guys that just scared the shit out of me. And I may have been right, but I, I just as easily could have been uh, having a hysterical response because, <laughs> because I'm me. But I was convinced that they were child molesters. <laughs> and, and so I, I took Min's hand and we ran out. And Lon, his mother, was sitting on a park bench. And I swear to God, I started running and screaming and flailing my arms and saying, Lon, Lon, child molesters, child molesters are after us. <laughs> and if you're not picturing a really faggy little Josh screaming child molesters, you should be because it's funny. Um, so as I got older... I looked back on things like that, and I decided that all of this interest uh, in protecting kids from pedophiles was an overblown cultural moral panic, and it was something the right wing was making up, and, and it wasn't really a big problem. I was wrong. I was wrong. Balenciaga is a fashion house in Spain that came up in the news recently for having images like this. Let's put the first one up here. This shows a little girl lying on her stomach on a couch. We've blurred the... Um, Blurred the little girl's face out, but of course, it hardly matters because this ad campaign went worldwide. Even though the pictures have been taken down now, there are millions and millions of copies of this stored, and it will be around forever. Um, she's lying down in front of a still life of champagne flutes, um, little pretty pink barrettes, but also some more disturbing things like a dog dish that has spikes around the outside of it like a dog collar. She's got a bear, a little teddy bear in bondage gear, in a leather bondage harness. That's her toy. And on the table, necklaces that look like they've got military dog tags on them, but they're in the shape of a dog bone. And I can tell you, if you don't already know this, that yes, that is a visual allusion to um, the master-slave relationship that you often see in gay fetishists. I'm wearing my dog tags because I'm Sir's what is this little four-year-old girl doing in these ads? Here's the next one. Same photo shoot. Little girl standing. She's got her bondage bear again. And this time, this is even more disturbing because you take a look at the bear. It may be a little hard to see on your screen. The bear looks like it's been beaten up about the face. I mean, 
you can say that the bear is wearing eyeshadow, but it, more, it looks more like bruising. Looks like she really got worked over that bear, huh? In the bondage dungeon. The hell is this? And worse, well, not worse, but, but really telling is this last image here which shows, um, we, d we did you a close-up here, but the whole thing shows a black and white purse on top of a messy table that has um, documents with writing on them that are peeking out from file folders. And you have to look really carefully to see what the text is on these documents, but it happens to be a reference to a Supreme Court case from 2008, I believe, that upheld a law banning the promotion of virtual child pornography. So why is that in the photo shoot? Because it's, it's a statement. It's a statement to you. And what's the statement? The statement is, fuck you. Yes, we can. And we're doing it right now. It's right out in front of us. It's right in front of our faces. You can see it. They're telling you, fuck you. Yes, we can. Hmm? Um, Brendan O'Neill is the editor at Spiked Online, good magazine. And I pulled out a few things from him about the pedophilia moment. Quote, it's hard to know what's worse, that someone thought it would be fun to put dejected looking kids alongside bears that look like they've just stumbled out of a queer kink dungeon in West Hollywood, or that no one at Balenciaga thought, is this a little odd? Quote, in another way though, it makes messed up sense that no one in this fashion chain, this fashion chain of command, stopped to wonder if all this might be a little bit strange. Because the sad fact is that pedo chic is everywhere right now. In a world saturated with images of kids in adult clothing, and when children bop along to pop and rap tunes that are sexually explicit, and when it is not uncommon to see kids petting men as pups at pride marches or laughing along with drag queens in skimpy outfits, why would anyone bat an eyelid at a picture of a girl on a bed with a kinky bear? Pedo chic is one of the most worrying trends of our time. We seem to be witnessing a surge in the pedophilic sensibility. No, this is not to say that anyone at Balenciaga is a pedophile or that a parent is a child abuser if he lets his kid hang out with brawless trans women at these bacchanalian orgies of self-regard. I'm going to break into Brandon here. I, this is where I disagree with Brandon. Yes, it does mean that. Yes, it does mean that. I know why Brandon feels he has to disclaim it. Brendan, excuse me, but I'm, I'm calling bullshit, Brendan. Yes, you are a child abuser if you let your child hang around with so-called trans women at what you call bacchanalian orgies of self-regard mixed with self-pity that pride gatherings have become. Yes, Brendan O'Neill, you are a child abuser. Anyone who does this, you don't have to disguise this. Back to Brendan. But it does feel like the pedophilic imagination, the view of children either as sexual beings or as fit for being exposed to sexual beings is having a resurgence and we need to talk about it. Yep, we do. All right, time for another break. We'll see you on the other side to wrap the show up. There's a new perk for disaffected subscribers and it's a good one. 
Patreon and Subscribestar donors, as well as PayPal donors, now have instant access to our backstage Discord server. Join multiple topic-based chat rooms and 24-7 open voice chat, and even virtual events on a main stage for hosted conversations and backstage podcast recording sessions. It's not Twitter, and you don't have to pretend Bruce Jenner's vagina is real. Sign up today. Welcome back. This is State Representative Emma Mulvaney Stanick, progressive Democrat for Chittenden County. And this video we're about to show you, this clip is from a meeting this past week for wards two and three of Burlington. Burlington divides its political districts up into things that it calls wards. Remember, Emma Mulvaney Stanick is a state representative, so she came. Uh, to address um, uh, people in Burlington's uh, particular wards that she represents. Um, so I thought I'd start first with something more hyperly local. This is the season that we're starting to draft bills to be introduced for January. So I have three that I'm going to highlight among my list. But I wanted to start even more local than that um, about an ongoing issue that's been going on for years in Burlington in the new North End and, and really, unfortunately, coming into the old North End. Uh, a series of transphobic stickers have been going up. I've mentioned this in a past MPA or two. It's ongoing and uh, several community leaders in the and members and neighbors in the new North End, as well as here in the old North End, have been trying um, relentlessly to take them down and to get the city to address issues. And I just wanna acknowledge Rachel Jolly, who's here from the uh, Community Justice Center, we have a, a few very hardworking partners in the city, but there's there's a lot of inertia on a higher level in the city to actually bring an end to these stickers. Um, we know who it is. The person is um, not a safe individual to be around, and it's creating a very hostile um, hate environment, given everything else that's going on in Vermont against the LGBTQ community, but especially our trans siblings, as well as nationally. And with the um, what happened in Colorado Springs, it's even more imperative that the city take this seriously. When we have a hostile environment, stuff like that happens, people think it's okay to harass and um, beyond hate speech, but to actually take action, which I'm very nervous about for the sake of, of Burlington and Vermont. So very long story short, <clears throat> a few of us, um, essentially I'm gonna use the word demanded a meeting with the mayor uh, to finally get this on his radar to actually take action and to bring a lot of partners to the table who've been trying in a piecemealed way to really get a solution so that we actually move on this and stop letting it roll into year three of this going on. So stay tuned, it's gonna happen by the end of December and I'm I hope I will come back in January with something a lot better to say that they are all been eviscerated and we have you know, inclusive, wonderful, welcoming messages going up instead. Okay, so. All right, so, all right, all right, so. Lesson number one, never trust women who dress like that, who wear those scarves around their neck. It's always the same kind of progressive bitches. Um, let's take Emma's bullshit apart. She's talking about the stickers that we talked about on the show. If you are new to the show this week, welcome. Thank you very much. Go back and watch our show from last week, and you'll you'll be able to see exactly what she's talking about. Uh, but uh, w there is there are people actually um, who are putting up stickers around Burlington that she's calling anti-trans. Uh, they're actually messages uh, trying to protect children. We're going to show you what they are. So. Emma says, a series of transphobic stickers have been going up. What exactly is transphobic about them? Question one. 
And who are these, quote, community leaders who have been, quote, trying relentlessly to take them down? We talked to you last week about the principal of the Burlington, no, excuse me, the superintendent, uh, Tom Flanagan of the Burlington School District, who sent out an email saying how alarmed he was at these hateful transphobic stickers that were going up on streets outside the high school and how he's directing his staff from the high school to leave school property and actually go onto the public street and take them down off signs that are not on school property. Uh, these people have, <laughs> I was going to say, of course they have no boundaries. What kind of people are we talking about? We know what kind of people we're talking about. So, and I'd like to know from Emma, how, how specifically are you and these community leaders going to, quote, bring an end to these stickers? What does that mean specifically? I'll be watching you, Emma. Um, and I hope you'll be watching me too, Emma, because um, we, we have a special, special message for you um, and for all of your constituents at the end of the segment. Um, we know who it is, she says. The person is not a safe individual to be around. I know this person too. Well, it's more than one person, but I, I know who they're talking about. What does that mean, this person is not a safe person to be around? Be specific. Do you mean to say that, that this person is violent? Do you mean to say that being around this person is a threat to someone's physical safety? Is that what you mean? Do you mean to defame that way, Emma? I'd like to know. Oh, I'm so glad this is all on video. I, I just, there's, there's a record of, of everything you people are up to. I just love it. It's going to come in so handy. Um, this is all atmospherics to make this seem like a very sinister incident because, of course, these people get narcissistic supply, ego gratification and stroking because they're narcissists. Whether they're fully personality disordered or not, I can't tell you, but they are narcissists. They are heavily narcissistic. And, and they're what I would call the community or communitarian or communal narcissist. That's not my term. Um, it's a a uh, colloquial term that's been developed recently to describe the more recent phenomenon, you find it mostly in the progressive left, of people who act narcissistically and act like saviors to the world because they want to be seen as part of a group of politically hip people who are out saving the world. So they get their, they get their narcissistic supply by being seen by others to be community leaders who are wrapping their arms of caring around children or trans people or three-legged hippos or whatever the fuck they're playing with. She also says, it's these stickers are creating a hostile hate environment given everything else that's going on in Vermont with the LGBTQ community. Like what? What is the everything else that's going on with the LGBTQ community in Vermont? What? Are you saying that we have a rash of hate crimes? What are they? Where are the statistics? Show me, Emma. Show me. Listeners, they don't exist. That's not happening. It's not happening anywhere either. It isn't. It's not real. Nothing is happening to LGBTQ people in Vermont. And that's not a coherent class of people, by the way. That's not a real class of people. Nothing is happening except their ascension to the status of the most sacred and protected legal class that can do anything they want to anyone at any time with no consequences. And they can and do abuse other people while being publicly recognized as abuse victims themselves. 
narcissistic reversal. The Randolph High School we talked about about a month ago, punishing 10 girl volleyball players by banning those girls from using the girls' locker room. Why did they punish the girls? Because the girls objected to a trans girl in their locker room. That is a boy, a 15 or 16-year-old boy. They objected to him being in there, so they're being punished for objecting. They're being punished for saying, I don't want him staring at me naked. Well, you know what? You know what just came out in the news this week? This boy recently admitted, this trans girl, he admitted that he was, in fact, just as the girls accused him, he was staring at them while they disrobed and got naked, and he was doing it as retaliation. Yes, he said it. Retaliation for what? For their transphobia. Retaliation for them not wanting to be stared at. Do you see how he creates the problem? Nice, isn't it? Do you wonder why these people do this stuff all the time? They have no fear. Why should they have fear? <laughs> they get applauded for being abusive. We've got lawmakers trying to get through House Bill 659 here in the state of Vermont that would give the state the right to forcibly inject children with puberty blockers over their parents' objections if the state can find a doctor that says, yes, this little boy with a penis and testicles is a mistake and should be sterilized. That's what's happening with the LGBTQ community. You're a bunch of fucking child abusers. You're not just child abusers. You're child mutilators. Mengele-level mutilators. I'm going to have to come up with something else because I know that's getting tired. But it being tired, it, it's true. Oh, my gosh, it's frustrating. Come, I mean... What else is going on? We've got the University of Vermont Gender Clinic that is literally sterilizing children. Our prestigious medical institution connected to the university. Two months ago, three months ago, the LGBTQ community assaulted and robbed, right out on Church Street, right out on our main drag, assaulted and robbed one of the founders of the Pride Parade, one of the originals, a veteran of the 1969 Stonewall riots, who then founded, co-founded the Gay Liberation March the next year, which became Modern Pride. Fred Sargent, one of the originals, they assaulted him. They robbed him. They pushed him to the ground. He's a 74-year-old man who walks with a cane. They gay-bashed him. That's what's going on with the LGBTQ community. She drags in this shooting at Club Q in Colorado specifically to talk about why these stickers need to come down. And as a reminder, look at your screen. Here are the stickers again. I will read them to you again. Sticker one, no one was ever born into the wrong body. That's sticker one. Sticker two, lifelong medical dependency isn't kindness, it's a business model. That's sticker two. These are the transphobic stickers that are hateful, that are creating a hate environment. These are the stickers that she says she's going to eviscerate. Eviscerate. Stay tuned. It's going to happen by the end of December. What's going to happen? What specifically? What do you, Emma, believe that you are legally empowered to do? What are you intending to do to violate the First Amendment and punish the sticker person? And she says she's not going to stop until they have all been eviscerated and, have, and, and replaced with inclusive, wonderful, welcoming messages going up instead. Listen to what she just admitted. She just admitted that she wishes to tear down speech she doesn't like and replace it with speech she does like. 
have you heard of the First Amendment, darling? And if you want to, don't deflect away from this. Anybody who wants to make an argument about this, don't deflect away. Don't say, it's not about the First Amendment, it's about um, vandalism. If you're going to make that argument, I'm going to bring up a whole raft of all of the stickers that call for the killing of so-called TERPs and feminists and the assault of Christopher Aaron Felker, my friend, the gay man, who is the leader of the Burlington, Vermont GOP. that are all over town that nobody does anything about. So if you're going to bring that up, I'm going to bring that back up with you. You don't have this power, Emma. But there is something, listeners, there is something you can do to help. We have a campaign and we'd like your participation in it. Emma wants to get rid of hate speech, and we want to introduce love speech. Take a look at GoFundMe.com slash love speech. We've got love speech for you. Does your town need to wake up? Do people need to have an opportunity to confront an anti-trans message in public? Would you like your own copy of the original Burlington stickers that started it all? You can get them. Go to our GoFundMe.com slash lovespeech. Give us a donation. We're asking for 20 bucks because we can. And you will get a pack of stickers sent to you. And these are no ordinary stickers. They're the exact stickers I've shown you on this show. These are the artist's original designs, lovingly and locally handcrafted in Microsoft Word. You can't get more farm to table than these folks. And act now, I didn't, you know, I've got Sally on the line here. I know I'm, I'm doing QVC. Seriously, though, you want to help out the show and you want to help out your community? Go to GoFundMe.com slash LoveSpeech. Kick your money in, get some stickers. And you know what? If you want to put them up around your town and take a picture of it, We'd love to feature it on the show. Thank you. Now, speaking of more unconstitutional things and staying local, let's talk about the Burlington Parks Department and our community garden. Community garden is a publicly uh, public land where people can apply for, I think the Brits call it an allotment. You get a little plot where you can um, work your vegetables, your flowers, or anything like this. So got a series of emails this week. Thank you, thank you, kind informants. Um, talking about the rules and regulations that citizens have to sign onto in order to be eligible for a plot at the community gardens. Here they are. This is wording from the pledge that you have to sign. Quote, by signing this, you agree to abide by the following requirements and understand that if you fail to do so, your plot privileges may be forfeited. I agree to be a responsible BACG community member by prioritizing inclusivity and demonstrating value for our shared humanity. This means, and then bullet points, one, being proactive about educating myself on matters of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Two, being aware of my own privileged identities and how these affect others and understanding, acknowledging, and exploring and challenging my conscious and unconscious biases. Three, remaining open to and engaged with the efforts of inclusion. When I make a mistake, am uncomfortable or am held accountable. Piss off. I didn't like it when I was spoken to like that when I was a kindergartner, and I sure as shit won't tolerate it at 48 years old. Give me a, who are these people? You, you know who they are. They're NPR. They're mommy tone. 
I pledge to do what Mammy says. Mammy says I have to be inclusive. Mommy can fuck off. Part of that email chain was a little analysis from a local lawyer, and this is what he had to say. Quote, this is unconstitutional. It reminds me of the anti-red loyalty oaths. There is actually a term for it called the unconstitutional condition doctrine. It says the use of public property or the award of public contracts cannot be conditioned on the waiver of First Amendment rights. The Vermont Supreme Court has said a similar thing about conditioning municipal employment contracts. The city can certainly prohibit discriminatory or disruptive conduct. It cannot require woke thinking as a condition of the lease as it does. Otherwise, imagine this as a condition to rent a parking space, get water, sewer, or electric service, go to the beach, use the bike path, watch the fireworks from Perkins Pier, or fly into or out of the airport. Bring on the denunciations, duche caps, and show trials. Thank you, sir. And Emma Mulvaney Stanek, you pull your shit, you're gonna find out. You're gonna find out how this works. And we'll be talking. I wanna end this week with, um, with a letter from a viewer. Um, I've broached it before, but it's interesting to see somebody else talk about this phenomenon. And I suspect that many of you listening will recognize this. It may, it may sting you a little bit because it's something we tend to feel guilty about. Anyway, I'll just read it to you. Um, and what prompted this if you haven't listened to it already, we have a new audio-only episode that came out this past week. I think it came out on Thursday. It's titled Cutting the Cord. Remember, our audio episodes, you are not on YouTube, Odyssey, or Rumble. They're only on your podcast apps. So they're on Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Google Podcasts, that sort of thing. Um, it's called Cutting the Cord, and it was an hour-long session. Um, I did a consulting session. As you know, at joshuaslocum.net, I offer coaching and consulting for people who are stuck in problem relationships, usually having something to do with Cluster B. And I did an hour-long live session with a man named Tim who's deciding whether to go no contact with his mother. So if you're interested in what sessions are like on how, how we can explore these things, absolutely take a listen to this. Um, Tim's experience with his mother is uh, will be familiar to many of you. So this is a different viewer. She wrote this. Something I'd like to talk about, which in my experience is not spoken about much, if at all, is how individuals who have suffered severe emotional and physical abuse from their cluster B parents are still inclined to insist to themselves and others that they love their parents. In many cases, they will insist upon this even after they've gone no contact or if the offending parent has died. I will go out on a limb here and say the unspeakable. I do not love my mother or my father. That does not mean that I wish ill on them or that I ever did. However, I do not love either of them. What I am learning right now is that I never loved them, even as a little girl. In fact, not loving them is probably what kept me safe and prevented me from going entirely insane. As a child, I experienced not loving them as mistrust and fear. Neither one of them earned my full trust ever. What I did do for a very long time was tell myself and others when the performative need prevent, presented itself that I loved my mother and father, but I didn't. I was telling myself what I believed I was supposed to feel and parroting that practice affect for others so as not to disappoint anyone or seem like an unfeeling, uncaring jerk. 
When I hear people who have suffered so much at the hands of their abusers say, I still love him, or I still have love for this moment with her, I really, really, really question that. So often it sounds like a reflexive regurgitation, a cultural curtsy, if you will. Is a child feeling actual love when their abusive parent leaves and he or she misses them? Or is that child confusing love with a longing for attention, validation, safety, and desperate fear of emotional abandonment? On top of everything else, victims of cluster bees negotiate. On top of everything else they negotiate, there's also so much cultural shame for not loving one's mother or father. The assumption is that one who does not feel love must be defective rather than the parent. Because mothers and fathers, but mothers especially, can't be cruel and unloving, right? They must feel it, but just not show it properly. People who are dealing with this insanity and cruelty need to hear that they are not awful humans for not loving their parents. I feel like it's the bridge to sanity for so many people. It's only scary until you cross it, and then there's a kind of peace. You're no longer fighting the war. Well said. That's the show. Thanks for joining us. I'll talk to you next week.